and welcome to season two of How to Breathe So You Don't Look Fat, a podcast titled after a lesson I was taught at eight years old. My name is Anna Mansell and I created this podcast to talk with regular people about the relationship they have with body, self and food, all in a desperate search to improve my own. So today's guest is Val Reardon, a New Yorker who's lived in Cornwall for 40 years. We talk about the weekly weigh-ins from her father, problematic thinking when judging others, and taking her 11-year-old daughter to Weight Watchers. It's sweary, searingly honest, and listening back, I really wish I'd asked for more detail about that Kennedy story. Anyway, here we go. I hope you enjoy our chat. So, Val... My lovely mate Val, who we met doing Pilates at uh, Savvy Studios in Hale. That's right. You were born in the US. You worked in the music business in New York in the 60s. You moved to London in 1969 and to Cornwall in the early 70s. You lived on a small holding and you were married to a musician. It all sounds terribly glamorous at this point, Val. <laughs> you had two daughters, started your knitwear business in 1977. Um, a whole host of things happened then between then and now. Your marriage split up in 86, you moved to Falmouth, you did all kinds of things uh, at u- various university courses, uh, including a PhD. I should have called you doctor, shouldn't I, really? I'm yes, sorry. Definitely Dr. Val, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you began training as a psychoanalyst, moved back to Cornwall and to Hale um, in 2012, um, and you're working very slowly, in brackets, you say, on a book. <laughs> a German Jewish artist um, and perhaps the most exciting bit from my point of view is that you worked with Democrats abroad to help get Biden elected bloody well done yes. <laughs> thank you yes I did hundreds of postcards and even phone banking which I hated but yeah yeah I'd yeah. like to say that we were politically impartial on this podcast uh, but as I've got no sponsorships and nobody's making me I don't have to <laughs> no exactly exactly and it was such a joy seeing Trump leave <laughs> <laughs> the only thing i've actually tuned in to watch him do in the last i know years. i know just <laughs> like yeah and the fact <laughs> yeah. that he's not on twitter you know so it's like it's great it's yeah, great absolutely so talk to me i sent you the questions through as i do with everybody and there's some really interesting things on there that you've sent back to me but we'll start off um at the beginning which is um the moment that you first became aware of your body what happened and how did it make you feel? And you basically just said very simply that uh, there was a lot of body shaming as a child. Yes, yes, yes. I had uh, an older sister and two younger sisters, but it was really my older sister and I were who was most relevant. Um, and my father was a complete body fascist and, you know, only came home we were i was born in new york and then after i was born my parents moved to connecticut but my dad used to be in new york uh, all week even though we only lived an hour out of the city and humans and it'd always be like oh, daddy's home you know and uh one of the things he used to do was uh, make us bring the scales down from the bathroom upstairs mm-hmm. and weigh my sister and i and then shout at us about and, and interrogate you about what you ate that week. You know, what did you eat? How many ice cream sandwiches? You know, all of that stuff. And, and it affected my older sister a lot worse. I mean, she had really serious kind of eating disorders through her life, you know, overeating. And, um, and interestingly, the four girls in my family, it affected us going down, you know, like, yeah, I fortunately I was the tallest, so I kind of got away with it a lot more, you know, because of that thing of being tall. But I remember, and I think I said this to you once, I remember seeing a photograph of us as kids and realizing that we just looked like normal children yeah. because I had this idea that we were all, you know, huge and, you know, gargantuan, overweight people mm-hmm. so that was really interesting and it was kind of you know it was my my dad's thing as much as anything you know he yeah, yeah. but it was also um and thinking about this because i thought about it a lot when i was writing you know the answers to your questions it was also that thing that there was something sexual in it as well mm-hmm. i'm quite 
you know, quite certain about that, you know, particularly with me and the way that I was always, um, you know, from a really young age, I was always kind of in some weird way, kind of sexualized, not, and I think because I was tall yeah. and, and I looked older than my age and stuff like that. But I remember, you know, overhearing comments from you know like an aunt or something who would say oh she'll be pregnant when she's 16 that one you know it was all that kind of thing you know that that kind of and a lot of like wink wink nudge nudge stuff but it was all this stuff that really was bound up in being female mm. was your dad like that with your mum as well then was he very restricted well he, my, my father was a womanizer, you know, he had affairs and, and girlfriends and, you know, cheated constant. He had a nightclub in New York at one time. He was very good looking and very kind of charismatic, but, you know, a maniac. And, um, and so he dumped my mother, you know, in the country with these kids. She, and um, I was a baby and two other older ones and then she went on to have three more my mother had six kids mm. you know and i think it was purely about kind of cementing her position yeah. as the wife and mother and stuff mm. but she adored my father but also was in a permanent state of fury you know because of what he was like so really they were like two narcissists who just you know, revolved around each other and had these six kids who, you know, were kind of brutalized within the the whole, you know, the family relationship and stuff. It was yeah. gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it. Uh, you said um, later on in some of the questions, you said that your mum was always on a diet. Yeah, she was. And I remember her, um, she used to, I remember when we had a television and she used to do these exercises by someone called Jack LaLanne right. and um, you know, who was some TV ex, you know, like the Joe Wicks of his day, you know, yeah. and she used to send off for things like stretch bands and stuff like that. Yeah. And she'd be in front of the television doing her Jack LaLanne exercises. It, my mum used to follow a woman called Lizzie who was on breakfast telly. Always right. the lycra. And she was always yes. doing her exercises in the morning. Yes, exactly. Well, I got really into Jane Fonda one time in the 80s. You know, the Jane, F I still love Jane Fonda. I mean, I have great admiration for her and she stuff. She is incredible. Isn't she? And when I had my knitwear business, I used to make the girls who work, the women who worked for me, we all used to stop and do Jane Fonda in the middle of the day. <laughs> was, I think I'd just come back from California and, and had been introduced to it from my sister, you know, so okay. yeah, yeah really nice. Funny. nice. You said that, um, that, over the years you've had two different fashion photographers um and your father constantly uh saying stuff about it and a couple of one night stands after sex of course you say but each of them telling you that you need to lose weight that you maybe you need to lose 20 pounds it was always 20 pounds it was always 20 pounds yeah you could be a model you could be a model you know i'd like come here's my card you know just lose 20 pounds you know it was always like that and I remember, um, oh God, I remember <laughs> having, <laughs> so shaming. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yes, picking up one of the Kennedys at, um, at one of my sister's weddings. There were some Kennedy kids there, one of Bobby Kennedy's kids who's since yeah. dead. Right. And, you know, and having an assignation with him. And same thing, you know, he's like, oh, you'd be gorgeous if you lost 20 pounds, you know. Oh. It's like, oh, God. Did you ever get to a point where you just told them to fuck off? No, no. I remember when I lived in New York, there was this diet, the, the diet doctor, he was called, Dr. Rubin. And you could go to Dr. Rubin and pay him a hundred bucks or something. And he, you came away with a giant jar full of um, 
capsules, diet pills, mm -hmm. different colors. And you were supposed to take two of this color in the morning and one in the, you know, that kind of thing. And it was amphetamine. It was just speed. Yeah. And, it was, and I remember doing this Dr. Rubin thing. And by, you know, the second week, I, I remember one time I was reading on the subway. I was reading over some guy's shoulder, reading his newspaper out loud. <laughs> Yeah, and he was like, because you know, I was so, you know, and of course I lost loads. I mean, the only time I ever got thin was always with drugs. Yeah, you know, and it never lasted. When my um, one of my sisters had a was a really big cokehead at one time. She's been sober for years, but and she lived in L.A. and I went out and stayed with her, and we did so much coke. I lost the twenty pounds, <laughs> and. Um, God. and bought loads of you know fabulous clothes and everything and then came back and within a week I could never fit into them again you know yeah. it was yeah. yeah it just just makes you feel miserable I mean, well it just makes you crazy is yeah. what it is you know you're just completely crazy the pursuit of thinness Yes, I wanted to talk about thinness because I've been thinking about it a lot, you know, since because I know this has been coming up and I've been thinking about the idea that um, thin is like, for one thing, I've often wondered what it would be like to have grown up a thin person. Yeah. You know, and that thing about that you don't have that same relationship to your body, that you can just put on whatever clothes you want to put on and, you know, and you don't have all that, you know, and I look at really thin women and I just think, God, what must it be like to just be a thin person, you know? But you and know I realized it's like thin is the unmarked term in the same way like whiteness is the unmarked term. We don't talk about being white. We talk about black people you know yeah. and we don't talk about being thin we talk about fat people you know yeah. and yeah. and so it's like thin is just the norm you know and and anybody else who's not thin is the deviant yeah the th the really interesting thing is some of the conversations i've had on here in response to conversations that i've been having on the po podcast people have messaged me on instagram and and so on um and sometimes they have, they, one woman in particular who I've been talking to has felt frequently that this was a safe space for her because we were just talking about bodies in the truest sense and our own issues with those and our relationship to it. But there were a few comments from people in last season that raised the fact that it, it, it was triggering for her because she has grown up, she lives in a thin body and she constantly still feels um uh scrutinized for it you know from the rest of us it's you know it's from, sure. from like yes. me who go how yes. do you how can you be like that how has that happened what do you do what do you eat how what exercise do you do how can I look <laughs> like you and you know and, yeah. and and equally people who occasionally are derogatory about the fact that she's slim are either through jealousy or just through pure meanness about a, a, a thin body I saw Jermaine Greer on television recently, uh, just, you know, on, so I can't remember what the program was, but she was on for about five minutes. And I used to know her and stuff. And it was like, wow, has she gotten fat? <laughs> you know, boy, she's really let herself go, you know, and it's that kind of, it's that thing. I remember there's a, a British photographer called Richard Billingham. And I don't know if you ever saw his work got very big in maybe the late 90s or something. And he, he came from a council estate in somewhere like Leicester or something. And he'd, his dad was an alcoholic and his mom was, um, you know, very, very overweight with like lots of tattoos and kind of three teeth, you know, and he was at the Royal College studying painting and he'd taken all these photographs of his family when he was home and the kind of chaotic flat they lived in and, you know, with loads of pattern everywhere and like 17 kittens and the right. dad falling over and the dad passed out in the toilet and all this sort of thing. Yeah. And some uh, visiting 
tutor who was a photo editor for one of the newspapers saw that he was making paintings from these pictures and he saw the photographs on the kid's desk and he was like oh my god these are amazing you know so he ended up producing these photographs you know really huge and everything and it won loads of prizes and stuff and i remember being in new york city at the museum of modern art back when you could travel mm -hmm. and um and there was a richard billingham show and i remember being there and there were these new yorkers you know young new yorker couples and stuff and you could see the horror on their faces and it was that thing about the abject it's like if i don't get up at five o'clock in the morning and run eight miles and only eat you know like seven almonds for breakfast this is what's gonna happen to me <laughs> you know it's like that specter of like the grotesque and stuff yeah and yeah and i just you know and i think that and I don't know if it's like a Protestant work ethic thing. I don't know if it's particularly American, but there is that idea, you know, that if I was were ever to just really let go, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, it would be horrible. <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, so, you know, describe saying that Jermaine Greer has let herself go. I mean, that sentence in itself is so dramatic, isn't it? <laughs> I know, exactly. She's 80 years old, for fuck's sake. Why shouldn't she let herself go? You know what I mean? <laughs> but what does let yourself go even mean? I mean, it's it, it's a, you know, it's language that we've, we've given ourselves or that we've been Absolutely. Yeah. And it's 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 a nonsense for all the things no, but it's totally about the whole thing about the unruly body and it's all female it's all about women you know and it's about women constantly having to police themselves and restrain themselves and restrain because of the way women are so associated with the body yeah you know and it's about this idea that that they have to yeah constantly be reining their body in you know like the body is too much it's taking up too much space you know yeah, yeah. the female body but yeah. we do it to each other though don't we i mean yeah it, absolutely like in dressed up as lamb what does that mean yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's it's vile it's a horror sometimes i look at clothes that i want to buy or you know clothes that i've got in my wardrobe and i think i'm 43 should i still be wearing that process <laughs> i think fuck that yes i should and i'm putting yeah. it on now because no one's going to tell me otherwise exactly exactly but it's very interesting interesting and I wanted to talk about the thing about menopause this is probably beyond your kin Ken yet I'm not there yet I was no. in the early peri stage yeah but it is uh, it is a really interesting it's a really interesting thing that happens because I remember um, walking down the street in Falmouth mm -hmm. and my daughter I had she had she was walking ahead of me and at the time she was probably like 24 or something like that 25 and she'd been in her studio and she was covered in resin and looking really crappy but as we walked down the street i i saw every single man she passed turned around to look at her right. and and nobody looked at me you know and it was that thing that i never realized that men did that until it was missing right you know i never realized that thing about how men check out women yeah. but it's almost like when you when you go through menopause and you're no longer fertile you know you're no longer viable in that sense you become invisible and it's quite shocking really you know at first and then gra and also it's very shaming you know the whole thing because when i started teaching i was just starting menopause and i would be giving a lecture and suddenly have this like incredible hot flush and i'd be like tearing off my clothes and you know and trying to fan myself without missing a beat you know and then putting yeah. the clothes 
back on again and stuff. Because and you can't let on, can you? You can't let on that you're... No, going to... no, and it's really shameful. You know, there's something very shameful about menopause, you know, about being old, you know, older and stuff. But it's also, I'm quite certain that, you know, being a long way off from that, that a lot of that way in which menopausal women are framed up as like the hag and, you know, the mother-in-law, you know, and all that kind of stuff is because once we move away from that heterosexual economy, that thing about having being policed by the gays, you know, by having to be attractive and stuff, yeah. we become really dangerous because we don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't give a fuck about what men think of me, you know, and that makes me dangerous. And I remember when I first noticed all the um, work that women have to do in relation to men, you know, like talking to them, you know, oh, so, oh, so you're living over there. Oh, how do you like it? You know, blah, blah, you know, blah, blah, you know, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I stopped doing it, you know, very deliberately. And it was really interesting because men, you know, would be talking and this man, and then they'd just kind of stand there. And because I wouldn't say anything, then they'd just kind of back away <laughs> and go find another woman to do the heavy lifting in the conversation. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it is really, it is really interesting. And I don't know if we can ever escape it. I think I think there have been huge strides, you know, I think young, you know, I notice with my granddaughters who are little, you know, but their mother, my daughter, you know, buys all these books that are about, you know, great women scientists and, you know, all that sort of, well, we didn't have any, I didn't have those kind of role models at all. Nobody ever talked to me about a career when I was growing up. It was never discussed. This is what I find interesting, fascinating about you, is the, the childhood that you had and the oppression that you uh, experienced and the, <clears throat> um, you know, the, the emphasis on your body and how you should look and all of those things. And yet to me, when I first met you and still now, to me, you are uh, this striking, empowered, strong, <laughs> you know, yeah. you've achieved all this stuff, you've lived yeah. life. That's not to say that, that, you know, I recognize and appreciate that there has been struggle, but, but you know, to me, you are the, the, the kind of strong woman that, that we should be aspiring to be like. And so to, to think that you have that, those feelings of invisibility and to think that you didn't have any of the messaging that your daughters had, that your granddaughters are having, you know, that our generation, the generations now that are growing up are having, I, I, I wonder where you got it from. How did you become, as you are, I know. I know. with such alternate messaging? I think it's helped that I moved 3,000 miles away from my family, you know, my parents. That helped a lot, you know, and I did that at 23. So I kind of, you know, got away really early. And... Um, also, it's very interesting because when I was um, uh, studying psychoanalysis, I came, I came across this thing, I think, in Lacan and stuff about how we're always trying to kind of outdo our parents or like vanquish our parents. And I realized that with my parents, my father always saw himself as this big intellectual and my mother was this completely mad knitter. She was always knitting. And I realized that I'd started a knitwear business that was really successful <laughs> and got a PhD. <laughs> you know, sort of like, fuck you guys. <laughs> so so you it's interesting because my dad, I, I think where I got that from, that kind of confidence and stuff, which is a double-edged thing. But I think it was to do with, in the family mythology, I was always like, oh, you're just like your father. You know, you're just like your father. Right. And my father was such a narcissist and so egocentric and stuff that the fact that I was just like him, 
you know, on the one hand made me constantly self-sabotage myself because I didn't want to be like him. Yeah. But on the other hand, I do feel that I did get a lot of self-confidence from him, yeah. you know? So, yeah, so that's kind of, and I'm really smart. <laughs> <laughs> good <laughs> yeah, you need to be i was gonna yeah. say it helps in life it so does were you, were you very aware when you were raising your girls were you very aware of all that you had been through and all that that you had been conditioned to believe and were you trying to do the opposite with them in terms of body and food and all of those kinds of relationships we was there any conscious thought process in that respect no no because i didn't even discover feminism or feminist theory until i went to did a postgrad in like 1990 or yeah 1990 1991 something like that right. I, all of that stuff had completely passed me by you know the whole of the 70s i turned up on the lizard in 1970 and that whole decade you know, is just one big kind of cultural blackout. I know nothing that went on, you know. And um, and in the 60s, I was more concerned with like civil rights and Vietnam and that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. So, um, no, I didn't. And I, you know, but I, I tried, what I tried to do was to give them a lot of freedom you know, a lot of freedom and a lot of openness and stuff. But I did also, you know, plague my old, I took my older daughter to Weight Watchers when she was 11. So there you go. Right. <laughs> How do you feel about that now? Pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> How did she feel about that? Oh, not good. No, and it does come up. But when she was doing A-levels or something, I remember she did a whole project called Fat is a Feminist Issue. Right. So in a way, they were much more feminist than I was, you know? Did they teach so, you, do you think? Did they? I think so, yeah, yeah. And even now, you know, I, I see in their relationships, you know, that they're much more, um, you know, really outspoken. And it's taken me a long time to get used to that because I'd hear my daughter speak to her partner and I'd think, oh, he's going to kill you, you yeah. know, because yeah. that was always my thing. It's like you, if you said anything, you know, yeah. you'd be fucking annihilated you know mm. so so i you know they're they're good my girls both of them you know they're both really confident and strong and kind of know who they are and they struggle of course they do you know because they're women yeah it's the, <laughs> it's the nature of the beast you know yeah yeah absolutely You said um, uh, we were talking about, in general, about the sort of triggers that make you feel negatively towards your body, and it's very simple for you in that, that in that you feel negative when you put weight on. Yes, but I was thinking about no, I wanted to. One of my obsessions early in, like my probably around your age or maybe a little bit older, I had a really dear friend, another American who was 15 years older than me. And she was kind of like my good mother. And, um, and I remember going swimming with her in the Helford River because she lived just above there. Yeah. And she had her bathing suit on. And I remember noticing. So I was probably she was probably 60 and so I was probably 45 or something and I remember noticing this kind of saggy inner thigh flesh mm -hmm. and I remember when that started happening to me shortly thereafter I think mm. and being really obsessed by it and going you know going to a gym all the time and trying to do lots of squats with weights and everything to and I still have I have a certain level of body horror you know about my own body you know things like that and now you know that I'm old you know you have all the stuff about just the 
the quality of your skin and and mm -hmm. the kind of flat you know when i hold my arm up in bed at night i'm kind of fascinated by the grotesqueness of you know all the skin just hangs down and my i'll be putting my shoes on and realize that my feet look like my grandfather's you know because i remember my grandfather not being able to bend over and I used to tie his shoelaces yeah. and that thing where your skin becomes really, really thin yeah. and kind of papery and, you know, and it's just like, oh, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's so weird, isn't it though? Because as a, as a smart woman, as an intelligent woman, I mean, well, there's two things really on that. The first is it, it, it all sounds very dysmorphic that your relationship to your body it feels as if there is some quite significant body dysmorphia there doesn't it because it's sure yeah but if i showed you the arms you would understand <laughs> <laughs> i just i just oh, dress yes, no, she's right she's right <laughs> but also you know on the flip side of that you you um you're you're still alive and you're still you know exactly i know privilege haven't you and oh no no and i'm really aware of all that you know but but you know i said the thing about putting on weight during lockdown and stuff yeah. and what i really really because what i loved about the pilates because uh, i would do two classes religiously and sometimes often three classes a week yeah and i got really fit i got really kind of strong in my body and you know and i lost a coat two or you know nearly three stone you know through slimming world and all of that but now it's the combo of having gained the stone and lost the pilates yeah that i just feel you know less happy because there's something about a kind of ease when you're feeling when your body feels good you yeah. know even if it's an extra five pounds or whatever there's a kind of ease you know and mm -hmm. and you sort of lose that i notice now that i'm wearing much baggier clothes again and stuff like that yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean you you say five pounds um uh i was talking um to yesterday's podcast um which in real term will be last week's podcast um <laughs> but i was talking to her about to lizzie about this i put five pounds on over christmas and yeah. uh and i'm sort of okay in principle you know i don't feel any different particularly but i am terrified that this is the start of the descent back into yes you know exactly exactly and it's and it it's it has made me really, really frightened and then angry that I should feel frightened because it's all such nonsense. I am stronger and fitter now physically than I was in my 30s, than I was probably for most of my 20s. Um, certainly, I am stronger and fitter than I was in my teens from a mental health and uh, certainly from a mental health point of view, but also, you know, I was... I was anorexic and bulimic in my teens and my early twenties. So from that point of view, I I am fitter now because I have a I eat every day and I eat well and I yes. move my body and I swim and I go for a bike ride and I sometimes do Pilates. You know, all of these yeah. things I never did back then. But obviously, you know, I'm twice the size I was back then. So arguably, yes. to look at me, you would say that I'm I'm much less healthy. So the the trick is to become. I mean, not that it's a trick, but the thing is to to work on being okay with how you are. But at the same time, for me, it's the thing about because I am a bit miserable about the stone, but that hasn't stopped me overeating. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm not miserable enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, I'm going to be like Jermaine Greer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come on. We'll come on to food in a minute. But I think the the interesting thing for me um, about any of that is that um, I also think 
you know, should, should I necessarily feel any guilt? Should any of us necessarily feel any guilt if we do want to lose weight? So yeah. so long as our motivators are are not about because thin is better. If if losing weight is purely because we feel a bit uncomfortable, um, you know, we felt better before. Uh, if it's to do with our body and how we move and how and being able to do the things we want to do and live the way we want to live, then losing weight shouldn't be a problem. But it feels like a, a it feels anti-feminist to me to 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 want to go to Slimming World to lose five pounds. That feels oh right. It feels like I'm letting the side down. Oh, no, but that's that idea that we're all supposed to look like Andrea Dworkin, which is not the case. Do I have no idea who that is. <laughs> oh, well, she was one of the early feminists in the 60s, and oh. you should look up a picture of her because she was enormous and wore dungarees and had lots of facial hair and stuff. Right. And she was like, the, you know, this was like, oh, no, I don't want to be Andrea Dworkin, you know. And then there was the whole kind of lipstick power feminism of the 80s and everything, yeah. you know, where it was okay for women to be sexy and... You know, and it didn't mean you weren't a good feminist and stuff, you know, yeah. it's kind of like, but I noticed I spent all day watching the inauguration, of course, mm -hmm. and I was noticing, um, like, Kamala's Har Kamala Harris's bum looks big in that coat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just madness. It's total madness. It's total you madness. You check yourself when you're having that thought process. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I don't just do it to women. I do it to men as well. You know, yeah. I have this horrible, it's my mother lives in my head. My mother was the most <laughs> critical person in the world. And I'll be walking down the street and I'll be thinking, who does he think he is? Look at that with those tattoos on his legs at his age. He, you know, and it's like, will you shut the fuck up? You know, <laughs> it's sort of like, yeah, horrible, horrible. It's really bad. But bad. also, but but I think, I mean, you know, so many of us do it. So many people do do that. And not everybody's prepared to say that that's, you know, that that's part of their thought process because especially now it feels like, um, uh, I mean, it's unkind, isn't it? It's an unkind yeah. thought process to have, and it's an unnecessary thought process to have because it's none of our business. It's it's nobody's business. Exactly. Exactly. But but yet, I, you know, I think the majority of people do have that thought process. And for me, with judgment of any kind, it's not whether or not you judge, because I think we all do. It's what you do with that judgment afterwards. It's, it's exactly yes. Or not. Yes. <laughs> But it's also very interesting because some would argue that the whole thing about um, judging the world or seeing the world in terms of seeing, of sight, is a particularly Christian, you know, let there be light kind of thing. And I, I, I used to think about the idea, well, what if you came into a room that was in darkness and everyone was just sitting in the room and you, you know, you found your chair and you sat down and you all started speaking to each other, but you couldn't see each other. Mm -hmm. You know, what would that be like? You know, it's kind of like listening to the archers or something, you know, that you, <laughs> you have to make up your own idea about who these people are and what they look like. I just but, feel like the, the idea of that feels so freeing to me. The idea that you yeah. don't have to worry uh -huh. about any of it. And none of it, therefore, is for anybody else. If you decide to dress a particular way or do your hair or makeup in a particular way, it's for you and you only. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. I, I thought of, about this this morning. Um, when I was uh, teaching photography on a photography degree course, I did a, I was first-year students, and I did a project with them called The Gendered Image, where we looked at work by men and work by women and tried to work out if there was something different. And then the project I set them was that they had to do a series of self-portraits of themselves occupying a different gender position. So the, yeah. So um, the girls loved it because they took all these pictures of themselves eating, <laughs> a lot of them eating and sitting with their legs and taking up space, you know, all yeah. that kind of thing. But there was one boy on the course who was very quite delicate. He was quite pretty. Mm. And he did a, he did a, 
self, some self-portraits of himself wrapped in a towel with his head, hair up in a towel, like those famous Marilyn Monroe pictures. Yeah. Uh, and with makeup on. And they were really exquisite, you know, and he looked amazing and stuff. And he shared with the group. His girlfriend had put done his makeup and everything. And when they finished, he couldn't get all the makeup off. And he was so horrified by seeing himself like that that he vomited. Wow. From seeing himself as a woman. <laughs> There's an awful lot in there that to, to pick up. Exactly. Exactly. But it is that thing about positioning. You know, it's how we are positioned, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and we've been positioned like this since the Greeks. Yes. You know, who decided that that women, you know, who thought the whole thing of having babies, it all took place in the man. And they just shoved the seed and the whole package into the woman who was an oven. Wow. Basically. Yeah. And then the, the all the children and everything belonged to the men, you know, and it, it's, it's just carried on like that, really. Mm. Thanks. I read a really great book called Over Her Dead Body years ago by a Swiss woman. I think she was Swiss psychoanalyst. And she maintained that um, the reason men are so fear afraid of women, because it's this kind of a lot of this stuff is driven by fear, you know, yeah. that need to police us and everything that we internalize. Um, is because women are so associated with the body. We are the body. Men are the mind, right? Yeah. You know, it's like Freud said, women were incapable of abstract thought and stuff. <laughs> so as the body, we are the, um, the womb. You know, it's where they began their lives. And, and it's where they were not individuated. They were merged with the female. And they live in terror of that. The womb, you know, the womb is equated with the tomb. It's with not being me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that this is part of it. And this is why there's an obsession in our culture with um, young women dying. Mm. Because, you know, that trope of the beautiful young corpse as opposed to because women are carry the whole thing about aging and decay and death and stuff it's all like a it's the decaying body is female it's yeah. not male you know you get what do you get you get the silver fox yeah of course you do you get the yeah. silver fox or the mother-in-law you know take your choice yeah yeah absolutely yeah, so that stuff's really interesting. And all of this, is, you know, it's all just runs so deeply. But it's also very middle class in a way, the kind of things we're talking about. It's very white. Yeah. Although I, I did read in the paper this morning about a black woman who went to Turkey for lipo and died wow. in the operation. Yeah, but I think it is prev more prevalent middle class and white mm -hmm. you know the kind of it'd be interesting if you could find a black woman in Cornwall it would be interesting to talk to one there are that? black women in Cornwall I do have um I do have a whole host of different people coming up on the podcast um, Good. and I'm hoping um later on there's a, a woman called Fiona that I'm talking to um that I'm hoping I can uh, have a chat with her in a couple of weeks time because yeah I mean I, I'm very aware of of that in sort of trying to curate a diverse conversation um but equally because of the nature of the subject you know people have got to be up for talking about it as well um, yes, and you can't expect someone to speak as a black person either. No, no absolutely yeah. not. And, and, yeah. and, you know, and even more so since last June, people are demanding more of black people but, and black women particularly. So I, yes. you know, I'm acutely aware of that at the moment. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's something that needs, to, it's a conversation that needs to happen. Um, because mm. I imagine that there'll be many crossovers and and a lot that's very very different as well so yes yes but you also what's also really interesting is that thing about the whole Love Island what I call the Love Island look yeah you know 
thing about all those young women who all look alike. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ivanka Trump and Melania and that whole, you know, that whole thing. And I was thinking about that when you asked the question about do you fear for young girls? You know, do you fear for young women? And and I was thinking, no, because there's so much cultural change and stuff. But there are always going to be those women who are going to put their kids into beauty pageants. And, you know, just like 75 million people voted for Trump, you know, there are always going to be women wanting breast enlargements and lip fillers and, you know, to look that way. They are. And I mean, the thing is, the question actually is, is what makes you worry for young people? Because actually the, the problem that we're seeing now is that as a result of things like Love Island and stuff like that, is that the, the eating disorders amongst young men is yeah. skyrocketing. It has always been a silent problem. Yeah. It's, it's worse and worse because, you know, um, as Matt said in season uh, season one, we were talking about it. And, you know, back in the 80s, the, the men that women were admiring looked like, um, you know, reg- regular guys. They looked like regular guys. Yes. Now, the, the people that the men, the young men that are being paraded on telly are ripped, you know, they've got these well-defined muscles. Yeah, and there's a... Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you navigate a world? I mean, we know this because we've been trying to navigate it for hundreds of years but but they're you know young men are now having to work out how to navigate a world that that they believe expects them to look a certain way and it's and the damage it could probably all get fixed now because men are starting to have the problem (laughs) do you think but do you think that's more to do with gay men or do you think it's right across the board i think it's right across the board I think it's yeah. the board. I think um, maybe uh, gay men experienced the challenge earlier, sooner, just to add to yeah. all the challenges that they more, <laughs> yes, more yeah. intensely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But but I, I certainly I think it's uh, across the board. I'm hoping. Uh, I'm waiting to hear back from a young lad um, who I'd like to talk to, who's like 23, recovering bulimic, um, and I want to talk to him because you know I have a young son and and. I can only speak to my experience and my experience will have crossovers, but it's completely different because it's expected expectation as well. So, difficult. Let's move on to food. Because what I find fascinating about this is that we've had this conversation, you are a feminist, you are an intelligent woman, uh, you've acknowledged that the thought processes that you have are utter bullshit and uh, and perhaps hopefully forgive yourself for any of those uh, automatic responses knowing that you're just human. Um, but you describe your relationship to food as ridiculous. <laughs> It is ridiculous. Yes. Like I just had a salad for lunch and then had four hobnobs, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of, yeah. And last night I ate, uh, cause what I do is because I have my grandkids for an overnight once a week, there we go. That's my license to bake and, you know, stuff like that. And I'd bought a pack of custard creams for them. Huh? You know, <laughs> I, I probably ate eight of them and I don't even like custard creams, you know, but I just, I get really compulsive. If it's there, mm. I'll eat it. Is, so what is, where does the concern come from for you? Because surely on the one hand, if you want to have salad for your lunch and four hobnobs, you're a grown woman, you can do what the hell you like. where does it become problematic for you well it becomes problematic in the thing of um but but you say you want to lose a stone and now you've just eaten four hobnobs Mm. you know or what also is problematic is the um that thing about eating eight custard creams in a row where I don't even particularly like them. Mm. I didn't enjoy them, but I still would not stop eating them until they were gone. You know, I said in my thing, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. You know, (laughs) it's like, it's really weird. You know, somebody gave me a, 
a pack of those um, chocolate mini rolls. Yeah. So, and that was a perfect, I just thought, I can't have these in the house. This is insane. But I thought, well, I'll just have one and after lunch. So I had one and then I thought, well, I'll just have another because uh, one isn't enough. And then I had to have the third one. And by the third one, I was kind of feeling a bit sick. Yeah. And so that was okay. I could stop. Right. But that thing about just having, I couldn't stop at one. I couldn't even stop at two. I, ha I couldn't stop until I was feeling a bit shit. Isn't that fascinating? Because that's, I mean, that's almost like there's some guilt attached to having enjoyed the first one. And so you won't stop eating until you, uh, until you feel shit. And then, I yes. Until you feel, yes. feel regret that you should feel. You should feel regret for having eaten any of those things. So you'll keep on eating until you absolutely definitely feel regret because you feel like shit, because you physically <laughs> feel uncomfortable. Yes, yeah. I don't know if it's guilt. I see it more as addiction. Right. I was like that with smoking. I was like that with drinking. I was like that with drugs. You know, it's like it's an addiction. You know, it's like once I eat one, then I want another one. And then, you know, and I'll only stop when I'm like spinning out. Or so, you know, yeah. I mean? yeah. <laughs> and I can't physically handle anymore. But I used to do when I smoked, I used to stay up at night just to smoke yeah. you know I'd be absolutely exhausted but I'd stay up just to have another cigarette you know yeah. and then I'd have another one after that you know and yeah just it's like something there's no off mechanism in my brain or something I don't know what it is it's funny isn't it because um uh I've obviously I've had several conversations with people where you talk about the fact that um you know you, you can have food addiction or sugar addiction and so on and uh unlike any other addiction you can't cut it out you can't go cold turkey on food because you have to eat to survive but there is a there's a an american woman um who is um quite big in the intuitive eating movement in america and she's written a book she's called caroline duna she's written a book called uh, the fuck it diet Right. Basically, and her view, uh, and I don't know where I stand on this, so it's for a discussion point, not because I'm trying to suggest that uh, you're wrong about anything, but her view is that food addiction is not a thing, that it's purely because of, um, you know, our uh, compulsion to, to keep eating because we think we shouldn't or to restrict because we think we shouldn't or... Um, and that if we were just free to eat and choose whatever we wanted without feeling guilt or shame about it, that those needs to binge um, would, would go. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it could be argued that I eat the three chocolate rolls just to spite my father, you know, who's been dead since 1998. <laughs> but, you know, they live on, as we all know. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know. No. It's, a com it's such a complex subject. And I mean, I, I know, having spoken to other people that, um, and I know myself as well, less so now, but there was certainly a time where it would be, you know, it, it would be a crutch. It would be a, right, I'm just going to keep on eating and I'm going to keep on eating and keep on eating. And, and something about that process of eating relaxed me, made me feel better. I, in the same way that a glass of wine or a cigarette would have done once upon a time. Yeah. Um, and so, and there's something about that. And then the need to do that in order to, to, to sort of find peace or level out yeah yes. i mean yeah. that is addictive behavior that is you know there's an addictive driver to that finding finding that crutch to be able to to cope um is but it's also well, but it's also something that we do in order to cope with things isn't it i guess but the thing is that when my eating is under control like when i was doing the slimming world you know uh, which i have problems with certain aspects of that i must say mm. but you know when my eating's under control and stuff i lose the um you know that inner monologue goes and it's so much more restful you know that thing about oh you shouldn't eat that oh i can if i want no don't yeah. eat it fuck you i'm gonna eat it you know rah, rah. you know just the whole <laughs> framework 
There's a frame yeah. there for you to yeah. Find. And I and I'm eating according to a regime, and I'm you know, and it's all within my you know the sins you know that yeah, yeah. isn't it you know, yeah. but it yeah, and it does, and it frees your head. You know, that's because it's your head. It's my head that drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, Charlotte Bronte was anorexic. Was she? I did not. Yeah, yeah. And apparently all the Bronte sisters were. Yeah. And also uh, Jane Eyre is supposed to be a kind of picture of anorexia. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not a new thing, is it? It's not something that no. we invented in 1966. It's <laughs> no, no. The first recorded um, case of it was in the mid 1600s. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because it's also all that stuff about control, which in a way is what we've been talking about in in a different kind of way. But you yeah. know that thing about it's about control as much as eating you know and if you think about it because you can think now you know we have so much processed food and so much plentiful food though i must say i went to the supermarket this morning and there are a lot of bare shelves particularly in produce it was quite interesting oh really yeah a lot of is that because they can't get stuff delivered because of Brexit? <laughs> I think so, yes, yes, exactly. Joy. 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 So maybe we'll all get thin, except it was all the fruit that was missing. Yeah, <laughs> of course it was. Well, because we don't eat fruit that we grow in this country anymore, do we? We don't eat fruit and veg that is actually readily available. Exactly, yes. You talk here um, uh, to sort of wrap things up towards the end of this conversation. One of the things that you also said was that you kind of feel that your ship has sailed in terms of your attractiveness to men, which is also kind of liberating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't, a, I, 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 can't, uh, I can't work out whether that's brilliant or whether... Or it's, sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. It's a requirement for so long. That's it's that that I, that is sad to me. That and, and you know you're not alone. I I, I get it. Um, but but that you no longer feel that. I would feel like that must be like a weight lifted off your shoulders. Well, it kind of is. It's that thing about you know the same thing that I said when you realise you're invisible. You know that yeah. there's a huge power in that. You know, but at the same time, I mean, I you know I'm pretty sneery about men my age. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to hook up with any guy. You know, anywhere near my age. You know, the best I would do, the most I would even consider, would be maybe like fifty. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I mean about my ship has sailed, you know, because, you know, and men my age are always looking for women younger anyway. But, you know, I don't, you know, I'm kind of glad, you know, I'm feeling the fact that I'm alone now with mm -hmm. lockdown just because I'm so curtailed in how I normally live my life. Yeah. And it's kind of a pain in the ass. But um, I still wouldn't want to be in this house with my ex-husband or with another guy 75 year old no. putzing around the place you know driving me crazy just like no, no. world of no yeah <laughs> i was listening to celeste barber being interviewed by jamila jamil on the iway podcast and uh celeste barber was saying she now realizes why the majority of her friends are either gay or women because who wants to be stuck in a house with a man constantly 24-7 <laughs> yes exactly and she has a very good relationship with her husband he's called hot husband on the internet she's she, right they have a great relationship but she does not want to be stuck in a in a room with him for you know 12 no. constantly exactly how are you managing <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful for my office and I'm sure he's very grateful for my office as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I know. Yeah. Uh, it's been such a joy to talk to you. I wish we could have done this in person. Uh, I know. I know. It's actually been really nice to see you, Anna. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. We should yeah. go on one of those walks through um, 
uh, through the lanes again, don't we? I would like to do that very much. So who else can relate to the custard cream story? It's crisps for me, maybe less so now than once upon a time, but I can very easily lose control around a Walker's prawn cocktail. If you have any thoughts following today's chat, feel free to tag me on Twitter or Instagram at howtobreathe so you don't look fat, or you can email me at howtobreathepodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we talk with Beth King, a trainee nurse, cold water swimmer and survivor of severe childhood illness. We talk about that, keeping our thin clothes and the impact her lack of body confidence had on her marriage. If you can, please do like, rate and subscribe to the podcast. I'd be extremely grateful, not least because it helps more people find us and I'd love to get these chats out to as many as possible. For now, thanks to Mike Hall for editing and music, to my guest Val for being so sharp, funny and self-aware, and thank you very much for your time. See you next week. <laughs>